church. And for those of you who may not know, this is Epiphany Sunday. David mentioned that a moment ago. This is Epiphany Sunday. So traditionally, in the church calendar, you all should have been celebrating Christmas right up until today, which is the way that I am reassuring myself that that huge piece of chocolate cake that I ate last night was perfectly within the normal human custom. I'm a Christian. Okay. the Lord, I eat chocolate cake through Epiphany Sunday, and now begins the time when I turn direction and I'll be 130 pounds by Easter. Don't worry about Christians traditionally have celebrated Christmas for 12 days, leading right into this Sunday, leading into Epiphany Sunday, when we transition our focus from the birth of Christ onto the life of Christ. This is something that's so wonderful about orienting our community life of faith around the church calendar is that it leads us through the entire incarnation of Jesus, through all the series of events of the incarnation of Jesus. It's that each year we're returning again and again to the expectation and longing of Advent and then the celebration of his birth. And now as we move through the calendar into focusing on his life and looking at the epiphany. The word epiphany simply means manifestation. And so the life of Christ is a manifestation of God to us. That is what is so valuable about the life of Christ is that we get to see God made manifest in a way that we can understand. It's God in flesh. It's God with us. The scriptures tell us that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So that we don't have to guess what God is like. We can know what God is like in the person of Jesus, through the face of Jesus. We can meet God through Christ. And we can know of God because of Jesus that he is the sort of being who moves toward broken people. This is perhaps one of the most precious truths of the manifestation of God in Christ. It's that in him we see that reality that God is one who moves toward broken people, toward broken things, broken situations, our broken world. He has come all the way to us, entered into the mire and mess of our lives with us, and is here now for us. This is a precious reality that we're going to focus on today and throughout the Epiphany season. We're actually in the weeks to come going to spend some time looking at the efforts that our church is involved in to plant new churches throughout Chicago so that Christ would be made manifest in neighborhood after neighborhood, so that people in our city would not have to wonder or guess who God is, they would be able to see him in the hands and feet of his people. See God in the very body of Christ, making him manifest by his spirit throughout this great city. So this is the season of epiphany for us, focusing on this reality that God has come to us, that he's come all the way to us. So then, why is it on Epiphany Sunday, 
when we are recalling that God moves toward us, that we have read a text from Matthew chapter 2, which incidentally is the traditional text read from Scripture throughout churches in the West on Tiffany Sunday, a text that highlights a story in which wise men are moving toward Jesus. This is the Sunday when we highlight that God is the sort of God who moves toward us, and yet so many Christians have marked the observance of this day, and we are joining them in marking the observance of this day by looking at a passage in which men move toward God, move toward Jesus. What gives? Why would that be? Well, the answer to that question comes in zooming in a bit on this story of the Magi, this story of the wise men. I'm sure many of you are at least summarily familiar with this great story of the wise men. It took place that not long after the birth of Jesus, perhaps a couple of years, some scholars who were located to the east of Jerusalem and were familiar with the prophetic Jewish texts promising the arrival of a new king in Israel, took notice of a strange star in the sky and made their way to Jerusalem and began asking around, what's happening? Is the new king here? Does anyone know where he might be? Has anyone heard of the arrival of this new king? They asked specifically, in Matthew 2, 2, it's recorded for us, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. These magi, we can tell from this text, are unusual in their understanding and insight into the Jewish prophetic texts. These magi are asking after a king whom they might go and worship. The desire is to go and worship this king. That does not reflect the broader Jewish mind or expectation of the king who was to come. The broader thinking, the more common interpretation of the prophetic texts in the Jewish scripture was that the king who would come would be a political or military king who would restore Israel to its prominence in the world and cast off the Roman oppression, the Roman rule over Israel. In case in point, right in this story, we have introduced to us the character King Herod. King Herod was himself Jewish. King Herod was born a Jew, he was raised a Jew, he was educated as a Jew. He was familiar with the Jewish prophetic texts, not as familiar as these wise men, not as familiar as the religious scholars in his court, but as familiar as an educated uh, Jewish person would be. And his expectation of the arrival of this king reflects the broader Jewish mind. When Herod gets word 
that a king is arriving, the promised king of scripture is arriving, he immediately feels threatened. And he feels threatened because he believes what most Jews believe, that this king who was to come would lead some kind of political or military revolution. And that that would likely lead to the unseating of Herod on his throne. Herod's kingly authority in the region in Judea was connected to Roman oppression. So even though Herod was Jewish, he was a kind of client king for the Roman Empire. He was ruling this region of Judea, this region where the Jews lived, this region whose capital was Jerusalem. He was ruling it for the sake of the Roman Empire. There was a bit of a deal, an arrangement worked out, wherein if he was able to retain the peace, to keep the peace, to keep any revolution ripples at bay, that Rome would allow him to rule, allow him to remain in this position of prominence. And so as he begins to get word, as word begins to spread through Jerusalem, these wise men asking about this strange star in the sky, indicating that perhaps these prophetic texts are now coming to pass, the arrival of a king is here, Herod believes that his kingship is threatened. He believes that Jesus might be the one who will unseat him. And so he calls the religious scholars in his court to him and asks them where this king is to be born, asks them to give him some more information on this king. And the religious scholars who work for Herod, they quote the prophets to him in Matthew 2, verse 6, and they say, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. There you have it. A ruler who will shepherd my people. That can be interpreted in various ways. What sort of ruler is this going to be? <coughs> Just what kind of shepherding does God have in mind? For the broad Jewish mind, the thought was political. Most of the Jews thought in terms of politics. These wise men, these magi, they alone were coming to worship him had a very different view of who this king was to be. In the epiphany of God, in the manifestation of God in Jesus, God comes to us. But that's not the end of the story. That's not all there is to it. The manner in which we receive him matters. And it matters a lot. And in this story, we see two very different ways of receiving this manifestation, of receiving this Christ, receiving this God among us. King Herod sees Jesus as a political revolutionary, someone with a cause. These magi see him as divine light, someone to worship. My question for all of us on this first Sunday of 2019 is how do we receive Jesus? 
when God is manifest to us in this Christ, how is it that we receive him? And, of course, being in a season of annual transition, as we now are, we could attach time cues to that question and ask more specifically, how did you receive Jesus in 2018, looking back? And how will you receive Jesus in 2019, looking forward to the year ahead? See, because it's actually not enough to simply know that God has come to us. It's not enough to simply acknowledge that God has come to us. He has to be received. Because we are not inanimate objects. We are not a fence that God is going to paint. We are children that God is going to love. And so the way in which we receive Him matters. It matters enormously. This is relationship that we're speaking of. At our family's dinner table a few weeks ago, my youngest son, who's also the youngest little person in my home, as we count our dog, he's just too annoying to count. <laughs> my youngest son was distraught over something to do with the food that was being served. I can't remember exactly what the particular reason was, but Bodhi, our six-year-old, he's the pickiest of all of our eaters, and so he's regularly distraught over the food that we serve. Uh, maybe it was something that was a little bit too spicy. That's likely what it was. That's often a scenario in our house. We serve bread with toast, and he claims that it's spicy. <laughs> Search of cream and milk uh, and yogurt. But for whatever it was, he was distraught over this issue with the food. Uh, and he kept frantically working out this lather. What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? Until his oldest sister, maybe it was his second oldest sister, said to him, Bodie, just do nothing. <laughs> to which he responded incredulously, How can I do nothing? And the moment he said that, I had a series of flashbacks to dozens of pastoral counseling sessions that I've given over the years in this church, wherein someone has effectively said that same thing to me. How can I do nothing? And my heart was actually filled with compassion. For those of you who have sat in front of me and asked me that question with the same kind of incredulity, because it is, of course, absolutely impossible to do nothing. We are never doing nothing. We are always doing something, whether actively or passively. We are always engaged in some reception of the world and the circumstances that are befalling us. Bodhi, in this moment, with his mouth scorched with the flame of bread and toast, could have actively run to the refrigerator looking for some relief in some milk product, or he could have passively sat in his seat and let the fires rage. Either way, he is doing something, and he is painfully aware that he is doing something. Dad, sister, how can I do nothing? There is no way to do nothing. We are always 
doing something. And so I think it's appropriate to take a moment here for those of you who have somehow heard me say effectively, do nothing, and apologize. <laughs> I may have said that explicitly. You may have misheard me. Lay the blame at both of our feet. One of the favorite truths that we love to minister in this church is that the work of Christ has been finished. We believe, and will believe this to our dying breath and to our resurrection life, that Jesus came into the world, lived the life that we could not live, died the death of a sinner in our place, rose out of the grave in triumph and victory over death, returned, ascended back into the heavens with his Father and has perfect communion there on our behalf, speaks into the Father's ears out of the longings of our hearts. And we believe that all of that work is completely finished. That there is no aspect of that salvation story that we can add to or subtract from in any way. There is no righteous living for us to fabricate. There is no atonement for us to manufacture. We don't have to try and defeat dead things on our own as if they're not already defeated. This is a precious reality of the gospel that we hold on to dearly. There is nothing to build whatsoever in the salvation story. Christ has given all of it to us. A full and complete new life to us. A full and complete triumph over sin and the grave to us. A full and complete eternity with God has been given to us. But, there is something to do. Because we are not a fence that God showed up to paint. We are children that God showed up to love. And children must receive love in order to derive any benefit from it. It does not matter the sort of love that is being offered. Children must receive it in order to benefit from it. Some of you know there are many tragic stories of children who have been harmed or mistreated in some way, such that their heart has grown callous out of protection and they're unable to receive love. And even though many people would seek to shower them with love and nurture and affection, they're unable to receive it. They're unable to benefit from it. Every kind of love that can be given must be received in order to be benefited from. Even the most simple kinds of love, even food and shelter, if food and shelter are not received, there is no benefit from them. Likewise, with nurture and affection. The nurture and affection of parents who love their children, unless their children can receive that and receive it vulnerably with an open heart, there is no benefit to them. All love must be received, not as offense receives paint, but as a child receives the nurture from their parents. We are in relationship here. So I'll ask again. How did you receive Jesus in 2018? 
How will you receive him in 2019? The Magi, for their part, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going to the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. One way to get at the question of how we receive Jesus is this notion of worship. The scriptures tell us that the Magi worshipped the Christ, that they worshipped Jesus. That is, they knew that he was worth more than anything, and they lived their lives in accord with that knowledge. When you know something is worth more than anything, the cost associated with engagement is very light. They experienced great cost, these magi. They traveled a great distance, they gave expensive gifts, but these costs were given with great joy, exceeding rejoicing. The cost was light because they knew the value of the person that they had come to worship. I recently bought White Sox tickets for my forthcoming son's birthday. Micah's birthday is this coming Thursday. He's not in here. Sports tickets are expensive, but the cost was so low because I know the value of the White Sox. <laughs> and some of you very much need to learn. Some of you are neutral and more mature. <laughs> Do you know what Christ is worth? Do you know what he's worth? I ask because the cost of worshiping him is high. For the Magi, the scripture records to us that the cost was high. They traveled a long distance, as I mentioned. They risked their lives to avoid Herod. They gave expensive gifts, gold, frankincense, myrrh. The cost of worshiping Jesus is no less in our time. You might be able to get away with receiving Jesus in our day if you can pretend that he is somehow beneficial to a particular popular cause. If you can trick yourself or others into believing that there's some political utility in Jesus, that receiving Jesus would help you accomplish some social or cultural aim, that he's helpful in some popular cause, then people might be okay with you worshiping or ascribing value to him. If you can pretend he has your back and he has their backs, then receiving Jesus could even be fashionable if you're in the right kind of company. But if you give up on pretending 
that Jesus is a right winger or a left winger. If you simply receive Jesus as he is, if you receive him for all that he is, if you receive him as one who is calling you to follow him in pouring yourself out in love, then he will cost you everything. The cost of being a disciple of Jesus is very high. And if you don't know his worth, it would be too high. Many of us who would identify as Christians, we don't really receive Jesus for who he is or for all he is. Right? We pick and choose. When his words to us <coughs> match some other desire or cause that we may have, when they cost us little or nothing, when we can use them to our advantage, then we receive them, we acknowledge them. But when my reputation is on the line, when my career hangs in the balance, when my social standing might take a hit of some kind, well, then maybe I'll find some other source for discipleship. Some other person, some other thing, some other aspect of culture. That's really the question for today. Whose disciple are you? That's a far more important matter to settle as we head into the new year than any choosing of resolutions. Whose disciple are you? Who will disciple you in 2019? Who discipled you in 2018? Was it the Christ? Or was it the culture? Was it the fashions of our times? Was it your own fears? Who called the shots in your life? I feel compelled to warn you, to warn us, to warn myself. Because if you haven't noticed, our present culture here in urban Chicago is always making a very powerful case for you to be its disciple. Our culture is actually quite good at discipling people. It wants to disciple you. And our culture tends to use shame and intimidation, the two most effective means of pseudo-discipleship, in order to demand that we capitulate to its values. We are being formed here, as we live here. And if we ever dare to step outside of the dogmas of our particular time and place, promise you, shame awaits. The culture will eagerly demand that you fall back in line. Shame and intimidation like this, they're powerful tyrants, and they can actually enslave us, such that we become the disciple of the culture, and Jesus becomes a faint or distant memory. We lose sight of it. 
Wouldn't that happen this year, church? St. Augustine famously prayed, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Culture is a cruel taskmaster, always threatening us with shame, always holding our fears over our heads, demanding that we submit to its dogmas. But Jesus is a gracious Lord. He is patient and gentle and full of tenderness. Jesus is the love that you long for. He's the love that our whole world longs for, and yet somehow has forgotten, somehow overlooked, somehow missed. The only cause of Christ is to know you and love you, to so invade your soul with the love of God that you will be flooded to overflow. That the light and life of God will fill you up until it spills out of your lips and your fingers. That every dark thing in you is overcome with light. Such that you are swept up into the very divine life of God. Such that you become a participant in the manifestation of God on the earth. So that you are included in the epiphany. A very member in the body of Christ. This is God's goal. This is God's ambition for you and for me. This is where the discipleship of Jesus leads into true and new life. New life for those of us who have trafficked in dead things. New hope for those of us who have despair. Jesus is the only source of that new kind of life. He is the only healer. He is the one who can make the sick whole. He is the one who can forgive the sinner. He is the one who can restore all things. He is the only one who is worthy of our worship. He's the only one who's worthy of our obedience. And he's come to live among us. First as a baby in Bethlehem, and then as a growing person through all of Judea, and now to the ends of the earth by the Spirit, He's here and present for us to receive. In the Eastern Christian traditions, the stories of Jesus' baptism and his first miracle are also included in the observance of Epiphany. And the purpose there is to encapsulate the whole of God's manifestation in Christ, to show all of the favor and rich blessing that is made manifest to us in Christ. Baptism, the cleansing away of impurities and sin, the refreshing of God, the new life in God, being dipped into the very life of God, the miracles of Jesus, the manifestation of the divine joy and power of God, pushing back against the broken darkness of this world, making all things new. If you have strayed from this Christ, make a pilgrimage back to him in 2019. Ask the questions again. How do I receive all that's been given? Ask those questions in earnest. 
If you feel lost, if you feel ill-equipped to answer those questions on your own, ask for help. Seek out help from those in the community, from other people who are walking on this journey too, who are making this pilgrimage alongside you. We receive Christ together. Remember one. Ask for help. We pray that the manifestation of your love and grace in Christ would affect our lives powerfully this year. Give us reflective spirits to consider whose disciple we have been and whose disciple we will be. Draw us into relationships. Heal our calluses. Soften us to receive what you have. And teach us your worth. Teach us the worth of Christ. Fill us with worship.